Welcome to Reformation Miami Ministries. The following is a rebroadcast of a sermon given by Aldo Leon, former pastor of Reconciled Church Miami, current senior pastor of Pinelands Presbyterian Church in Cutler Bay, Florida. My name is Richard Carrington, and I am privileged to be a member of Pinelands Presbyterian. Welcome to Woody. I hope he comes back. He's my tennis coach, so he's here today. Thank you, Woody, for coming. Great church, wonderful place to be on a Sunday. We get to be outside. I will be reading today Revelations 14, 1 to 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And then I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits of God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So we are in Revelation. We uh, recently went through chapter 13 for four weeks, and we saw about how the devil is really busy doing a whole lot of stuff in chapter 13. He has this dude called the Beast who is a human figure who basically tries to make government godlike. He tries to have this religion of state and civil and humanistic power. He likes to kind of recruit the church to join humanistic powers to get God's stuff done. So he's all about wedding church and state to be about this humanistic earthly empire. We talked about how this beast affects all the globe all the time. And so, you know, beasts and antichrist, all this stuff, it's not some unique thing here or there. It's always going on all over the place wherever people are not in Christ. And we also talked about how we also lose a lot we lose a lot as a church. We, we have a lot of temporal loss. And we also talked about how this religion has their own sacred signs, seals, and symbols, and slogans. And it's basically, yo, throw up our slogans and seals and signs or else it will make your life hard. So what do we do? How do we process? How do we respond or react to all this activity and busyness in chapter 13? The beast is rising up out of the sea. He's always rising up and he's always building and doing something to oppose God. Let me tell you something. How we respond to this chapter 13 drama will be the difference between us being against Babylon or being a part of it. If you wage war as a church according to the way they play the game, then you will, we will be a part of their game. You know what I'm saying? We can't play the game according to their rules. We play the game our own way. So all this stuff in chapter 13, if we approach it on their terms and play the game with their rules, guess what? We will just be another church with a name of Christ, but does nothing to advance God's kingdom and oppose Babylon because we're playing the game their way. We've got to play God's game their way. In some other way, we've got to play the politics of the kingdom of heaven, not the politics of the city of man. Now, Revelation is not like other books of the Bible where we're talking about marriage and family and loving one another. It's not that. Revelation is a political book. What I mean by that is it's talking about the politics of heaven, the politics of the New Jerusalem rescue community versus the politics of the cities of man. That's the focus of Revelation. So we're not talking about, hey, loving one another practically, blah, blah, blah. We're talking about two realities, two realms, two cities, two political realms and how they compete with each other and, uh, and uh, interact with each other and how we approach it the right way. So here's the first thing. As we see all the drama in chapter 13, all that demonology stuff, 666 stuff, 
we have to approach it by seeing ourselves as arrived and not arriving. It says in verse 1, Then I looked, and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and the rumbling of loud thunder. And there were harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So you say, what is Mount Zion? Well, let's just really quickly go to a few Bible verses in Scripture to help us understand what Mount Zion is. So we understand that we're not just going on some mountain someday and hanging out and saying, yeah, Jesus, but there's something theologically, spiritually significant right now, right? You, you, you follow me? Joel 3.21, I will avenge their blood, the blood I avenge, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So Zion is a place where God is hanging out with his people, number one. Number two, Obadiah, Obadiah 1.17, but in Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So number two, Mount Zion is a place where God is with us through the power of rescue. Number three, Hebrews 12.18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice of who words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they heard it and they could endure what was given. Even if a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, it was so terrifying that, on the, that the sight of Moses said, I tremble with fear. So basically, when God speaks conditionally, you should do this. It's really scary. When God relates to you conditionally on Mount Zion and he says, you better do this to be blessed, it's really scary. Don't even touch the mountain. But where do we relate to God by? But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose, whose sprinkled blood speaks better word than the blood of Abel. So, what is Mount Zion? It's a place where God relates to us through salvation that is unconditional, gracious, unilateral, one way, not because of you. You follow me so far? Zion is a place where God is with us by a one conditional, gracious arrangement. I got one more Zion verse for you, all right? Psalms 2.7. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. So basically... Zion is a place where eternally represents, eternally a place where the Father and the Son made promises to rescue us by their commitments to themselves. So let's, let, let, let's, let's take all those things together. Zion is where God is with us through salvation that is unconditional because it's rooted in the promises of the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity. It is a place where we relate to God based upon the fact that we have arrived already by the work of the King, by His grace. We have arrived already in grace, in His story, and we're not arriving or ascending with Babylon's escalators of arrival. That's what it's basically saying. So how do we see all the busyness and activity of chapter 13 by seeing us standing in our position of righteousness and forgiveness and rightness already in Mount Zion where God did what was necessary to bring us in? Now there should be some amens to that, you know. God brought us on the top of the mountain through Jesus. But here's the thing, Babylon got a new way of going up God's mountain. You know, Psalms 24, how, who will ascend the mountain of the Lord? It sounds like this. All, all chapter 13 can be said to be this. Isaiah 14, 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the fear reaches of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See, so as we see Babylon and all busy with all of their so-called rising and ascending to become godlike, we're supposed to see ourselves as already arrived, already there, already proven, not by walking up in any sort of way with any sort of Babylon escalator of any kind, but we're already there. We're standing there right now, positionally righteous in Jesus. Listen, when you believe Christ, Ephesians 2, 5 says he raised you up and seated you in heavenly places. Not by you working or walking or doing anything, but by standing in the victory of Jesus Christ, the Mount Zion victory of the gospel. And so we don't need Babylon's elevation theories, elevation slogans, elevation ideologies and agendas to ascend the mountain. We have arrived with Jesus and that's where we're standing. So all the activity 
and busyness of going up in chapter 13 leads us to the standing and arrival of the gospel in chapter 14. You know what? This really affects us in a lot of ways because if I listen, if you and me have already arrived, then I'm free to lose on the ground without becoming overwhelmed at my loss. See, when, when Babylon and the cultural warriors of the city of man defeat us, and we don't have to be despairing and, 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 and depressed because no matter what happens on the ground, no matter how much Babylon seems to win, we are standing in the victory of Mount Zion. Babylon cannot change that. The cultural wars cannot change that. So we don't have to be like some Christians who are well-meaning and they see all the busyness of Babylon, all the victories of Babylon, and they say, we got to accrue wins to beat Babylon. No, beloved, we are standing. We have arrived in this triumph. And we don't need to jump on any Babylon elevators of ascent and arrival. We don't need to listen to the religious thinking of Babel, where there's always something else to ascend. More experiences, more rules, more cleaning of yourself, more deliverance, more ways to prove yourself, higher spirituality, more deliverance, more radical, more this, more that. Beloved, we have arrived. Christianity is about understanding that you walk down from the mountain and live your Christian life, not just walking up the mountain to arrive. You start with the gospel. You start with Mount Zion and you walk your way down proven and you have nothing to prove to anybody, not to society, not to your family, not to your friends, not to the culture. You are proven. You are standing on Mount Zion right now because of Jesus. And so when Babylon comes with their self-justifying, self-proving, self-elevating religion, we say, we've arrived. We've arrived. You know, it's, it's the difference between somebody going to a place and you're trying to get somewhere important, soccer game, whatever, and the difference between getting a front seat is you getting there fast enough versus you realize that somebody's sitting in your seat and they're holding it for you. Beloved, Christianity is not us running as fast as we can, stepping on people, moving, you know, you know, being all rude to people because we're trying to get somewhere. Is Jesus having already arrived in our place, in our position, and us being able to walk there wisely, gently, humbly, and lovingly because we're already there. Someone's holding our seat. Listen, the reason why people are worldly and awful and proud and unloving and unwise is because you bought into this bogus religion of arrival by your ascent and you haven't realized that Jesus has already taken your place so you can walk and take your time on your way to that place. And you know what, this, this, this makes us uncomfortable. So, some of you, the second, the second that I say you are right on Mount Zion, you want to say a but. And what I want to tell you right now is there is no but. You're there. But you're there. But you're there, not because of you. But, 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 comma, comma, comma. Indenton, paragraph, citation, whatever. You're there, period. Don't be uncomfortable with this because you know what? Babylon is in our intuitions. It's there. We all think that there is some mountain we have to climb to arrive and all the busyness of Babylon and all their projects and winds feeds into that. And yet Jesus says, chapter 14, you have arrived on Mount Zion now. That's the first way we respond to all the busyness. Here's the second thing. We have to realize that we are defined, not self-determined. And with him were 144,000 who were, had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now listen, if you think you have a Jesus tattoo and that's what that means, beloved, it is so much more significant than having a Jesus tattoo on your head. On the flip side, having a Satan tattoo on your head or on your wrist. This is talking about who you identify with. Deuteronomy 6, when God said to things on their forehead. He was talking about, I am your covenant Lord. I am your redeemer. So identify with me supremely. He's not saying put some tattoo on your head. 
Here's another thing that helps us understand what this word about having his name on our head. And it goes to Exodus 28, 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. So the priest would have something on his head, a, a thing on his forehead saying, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on a turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And what is this thing on his head about, this holiness to the Lord about? Here is the punchline. Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall readily be on his forehead that they may accept it before the Lord. So Jesus is our priest, right? So on his forehead, he bears his guilt, your guilt that he bore for you. And because on his forehead is your guilt, you have an identity with God. You have a name in heaven that is based upon your priest's gracious work. You've got an identity. You've got a driver's license. You've got papers in heaven because the king has taken your guilt on his forehead and forgiven you. That's what John is saying. You have a name that has been given to you by God, not self-determined and self-defined by Babylon. So you know what Babylon's all about? Babylon's all about you defining yourself by yourself and in yourself. It's, it's, it's chapter 11 over and over again. Let us make a name for ourselves. What you name, you can be. What you feel, just de define yourself based upon your will. Chapter 13 is self-determination, self-definition, religion. But beloved, we are the 144,000, which if you want to remember how I explained that, go to chapter 7 in the sermon. It should be there. You could find it. And I explain what the 144,000 are. It, it's speaking about the church in Old and New Testament of all the ages, the Old Testament church, the New Testament church, all of those who have been proven and saved by the grace of Jesus. And so listen, we don't have to build an identity resume. We have been declared and given an identity resume that's based upon Jesus' resume. So on your forehead, you are marked, you are defined, you are proven, you are who you are because Jesus entered into history as God and as man and he lived 33 years of awesome obedience in your place and that man also died on a, on a cross for all of your sins and all of your guilt and he paid the just sentence of God and that man was buried and he was raised and he ascended. That has given you your name. Your name does not come from you, anything in you at all. It comes entirely from the name that has been written on you based upon Jesus. But Babylon is all about self-determination. But we are about being declared who we are, not because of anything that is in and because of us, but has been given to us by his story. Listen, I, I like to use the illustration. Uh, when you think about your identity, think about grandma. Grandma looked at you when you was ugly. Look, let's just be real. Some of us are ugly. Some people think I'm ugly. I don't. I, I, I said I don't care. You know, like I, I'm married, so I'm good. But Grandma would look at you and say, "You're beautiful." Why? Because she's looking at you based upon how she sees you through herself. She's not looking at you based upon what she sees in you. She's looking at you through the filter of Grandma. Now you see where I'm going with this. Jesus looks at his kids and makes declarations of their beauty and their identity based upon not what he sees in them that is, that is lovely, but based upon how he filters you through himself. That's the gospel identity that we have. It's not, oh, I look at this in you, and I look at that in you, and I look at that. Oh, that's great. And based upon what I see, I make a declaration. No, he gives us a name that is based on his identity because he filters us through his story. Let me tell you something. This is the only name that will get you into eternity. I got a whole lot of, I got, I got a whole lot of hats, you know what I'm saying? I'm a male. I'm a second generation Cubano. I am an American. I'm the pastor of Pinelands Presbyterian. <laughs> I'm a husband. I'm a father. I live in Homestead. What? Exit one. And guess what? None of those titles and identities can take me home. They can only make life here temporarily significant. But this name, this identity takes me all the way home and into eternity. You know what's interesting? It says this is their song of the redeemed. You know, 
you know what? Like they keep singing the same songs. Now there's two ways for we could, the church to see their songs. And you can see yourself as a DJ. The church is a DJ. So, you know, when, when a DJ plays a song, he's always the next one, right? Next one. Doom, doom, doom. Okay, next one. Doom, 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 right? That, that's the one way we see the church. The DJ's playing a new song. What's culture singing about? All right, remix, new song. Let's see about that. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one. But there's another way we can see the song of the church. And it's like little kids with songs. It's the same song over and over and over. What are we going to sing now again? It's the wheels on the bus. Blah, 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 blah. Over and over. Beloved, that's us. We got one song that we do not change the dial. We keep singing the same song of our gospel identity over and over and over. We will be singing this now until eternity and when we go to heaven and we'll be there for a trillion years. If there's even time, we'll still be singing that gospel song. And there'll never be some DJ who says, hold on. Wait a second. This is really popular right now. Let's play it in the church. Now, one song of the redeemed, one identity that is always there song. Run it back. Don't change it. Beloved, anything, listen, the city of man will want to make you feel like you're mostly who you are by a million different things that are not Jesus. Political hats, racial hats, ethnic hats, demographic hats, economic hats, personal hats, emotional hats, experiential hats, behavioral hats. It doesn't matter. Whatever I can make your biggest name that's not Jesus, it's a win for the city of man. Now, it's all fine to have many hats, but what we're saying is that this is our biggest, most massive, defining hat. And let me, let me say something that may help you like, to see is maybe this is something you struggle with and need to grow in. Do you find yourself often offended, flabbergasted, and bothered by the lesser things that you identify with? Do you find yourself to be that person? Do you find yourself to often be proud and inflated and hard to be around because of these lesser identities that you, you find about? Is that you? It's probably because this big old name that is really massive that's on your forehead because the gospel that takes you an eternity has a lower seat and these lesser identities, these lesser things about the city of man have become a primary seat. And therefore, you don't have a big enough name on your head to keep you secure as things happen. You know what I'm saying? But let me tell you something. If my biggest identifier is the name that I have been given by my priest, I got security, y'all. I got security. I have peace because I am defined by something supremely massive and large and ultimate, and not something lesser and smaller, though I have many smaller categories. Let me tell you something. Right now, the world is trying to write on our foreheads, right? Right? It's like, here's the thing, man. My forehead got no space for you to write on me. See, Pilate's Presbyterian, there's been so much gospel graffiti on here, there's no space for you to write on these walls. That's a picture, right? It's like graffiti's wrong. Yes, I get it. It's a picture, just like the tattoo on the forehead is a picture, all right? It's not a declaration about tattoos, Okay? Listen, we are not, haven't have you ever been to these race car tracks over here? Nobody goes to the race car, race car track in Homestead? We have a race car track in Homestead. All right, like, like one family. You go on these cars, and they, and they got all these stickers for all these people that they repping, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like third, third, here's the thing. The church got one sticker, beloved. And we don't let nobody put their stickers on our, on our, on our institution. We have a name that has been written on us, that is entirely about our beloved husband and heads getting us this. And you know what? This is going to be a long sermon. Okay. Point number three. I, was, I, 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 got too, I got too amped up in those first two points. And now after my third point, you're going to be like, I'm done. He, you know, I, I have my sermon. All right. Sorry. We have to re- see ourselves, beloved, as monogamous, not bigamous. Monogamous, not bigamous. We got one husband, one, one, one head, not a whole bunch of side heads, side chicks, if that's, a better, if that's another illustration, side whatevers. Number four, these are those not defiled with women, for they have kept their virginity. Now, that, has, that does not mean that the church is a bunch of 40-year-old virgins, okay? First of all, there's no one scripture that says that not being married is, is you're more spiritual if you're not married. Paul says it's practical, so not being married does not make you more pure. So that cannot be the meaning, all right? Number two, the 144,000 is a church, not a bunch of 40-year-old virgins someday, okay? 
Number three, chapter 13 is all about spiritual harlotry and spiritual adultery. And the whole book of Revelation is about spiritual adultery. So when John is talking about the church is pure and has one husband and it's not an adulteress, it's talking about spiritual purity and spiritual integrity to our husband. And we don't cheat on our husband with Babylon. That's kind of like the virgins, the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Five were foolish, five were wise. But there's something else that's interesting about this phrase. It's bringing us, it's, it's echoed in the wilderness when God's people were supposed to purify themselves for warfare as they were about to enter into the land of conquest and engage the pagan nations. So here's a picture that John wants us to, John, John is a picturesque theologizer, all right? He, does, he wants to see Babylon all around us and not get caught in everyday things and join them. He wants us to go to war with them. He doesn't want us to cooperate with them. He wants us to put on war paint and go against them. That's the, the picture there, to stay pure and not put on their identity marks, but put on war paint. And let me say something. Let me go back to the side chick picture. Whenever you watch a mafia movie, what do what are, what are, what are, what are all the men? They all, all the men have their wives, right? Their wives provide their most important things, and then they got the side chicks that provide other things, right? Like emotional, you know, you know, talking, conversation, joy, happiness. And the assumption is this woman provides the most important things, but I need some other people to provide other important things. And we tend to, if we're honest, we tend to see Jesus kind of like that. He gives me big stuff, but guess what? I need to date and have some side hustle of Babylon stuff to feel like I am sufficient. Don't we all do that? Yes, we do. We do. But what God is saying to us is that, listen, you have Jesus, you have the ultimate husband, and therefore you need nobody else. You need no Babylon dates. You need no Babylon porn. Jesus is utterly sufficient, and you belong to him, and that's it. No cooperating, no dating, no extras. And you know what? There's ways that we do this, I think. We get our forgiveness from Jesus, but then we get our sense of power over sin, over something else. We get our eternity from Christ, but then we get our daily hope from some other person. We embrace the biblical Jesus, but then we also embrace the prosperity Jesus, the Santa Claus Jesus. Or we embrace the patriotic Jesus. Who's the patriotic Jesus? He's somebody that thinks that America is somehow the hope of the world. Now, America is a great country. It has a lot of common grace, but the patriotic Jesus is that basically that God's kingdom rises and falls on an earthly empire. Or the mystical Jesus, the one who zaps you on the floor and puts you into a mindless frenzy. Or the revolutionary, ideological, mainline media Jesus. Or they say we embrace the scriptures about Christ and we also need to embrace the universal talking head ideologies that are about humans' ways of dealing with the world. So basically all of this is just basically like Jesus is great and he's sufficient, but we need something or someone or some other version as well to complement Jesus. Now let me give you an example of this. There was a, a, a Baptist pastor who said, the church has the gospel, and we don't need critical theories from universities to do our mission. And people said, we're out of the SPC. Now think about what he just said. The church does not need side chicks. We have Jesus, and we have the gospel, and we have the good news. We don't need Babylon side hustles. We have Jesus. And people are saying, I'm out. Give me some room for playing both sides of the coin. Let it be Jesus and something else, someone else. Jesus of the scriptures and the new age, Jesus. But beloved, you know what? Well, you know what John is saying? You know what that is? It's adultery. It's adultery. To see somebody else as our hope as our sanctifier, as our marching band, as our mover, as our shaker, to see somebody else who needs to come in. Beloved, because no one is like Jesus. Has anybody on the earth ever lived eternally like Jesus? Jesus always existed. Did anyone on the earth enter into history fully God and fully man and have a sinless life? No. Did anyone in the history of humanity die on a cross and on that cross as God and man take all of our sins and bury them away? Did anyone come out of the grave? No. There is no other helps. That's why John says, you better 
be very careful, church, to commit adultery with all the things that Babylon wants to add to Jesus. Jesus does not need any help. He needs no side hustle. And you know what, beloved? We got to be honest with each other about it. We got to be honest in this day and age about it. Let me give you an example that's maybe helpful. I had a friend of mine who was married and, and he was entertaining adultery and he was giving all these reasons for why he should be able to engage in adultery. And everyone around him was like, okay, you know, rationalizing and reasoning. And, and I was like, bro, listen, it's this simple. You're married to your wife and if you do anything with some other woman, it's adultery. It's that simple. And everybody else is just theologizing and rationalizing and all this stuff. And he got mad at me, right? And you know what? Two years later, he's like, thank you. You're the one person who said what I was doing and that kept me with my wife. Now, what I'm saying right now, the church has to be people who we call it for what it is. It's adultery, beloved. And we're calling you back to the purity of the gospel. And we need to be church and Christians that promote the purity of the gospel, the purity of our husband, and not make sense of all these people that we need to lie with and get in bed with to get God's stuff done, right? It's adultery, beloved. It's adultery to think that anything or anyone else is going to be how we find ourselves mostly doing what we most have to do. We need no side chicks, no side hustles, no side saviors. Here's the next point I have to say. So number one, we've arrived. That's how we, that's how we fight. Number two, we're defined, not determining ourselves. Number three, we've got to be monogamous. None of this dating all these other messiahs and other things that compete with Jesus. Fourthly, we have to see ourselves as direct, directly and daily dependent on Jesus. Look what it says in the verse. These are those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's a weird way of saying things because is Jesus walking around the earth? No, he's not. So why would he say we're following around Jesus wherever he goes? It's, it's, just, an, it's, it's just a very intriguing way of saying that Christians are always doing all their steps in light of Jesus' steps. We're always taking any steps as we trust in the story and the steps of Jesus. We take no steps. We make no directions. We go no place or the other unless we are following the steps of our Savior. Make sense? That's what, that's what John is trying to say. And it's not that, you know what, Jesus... I'm going to trust Jesus for heaven someday. He's saying, listen, Christians trust Jesus for all of their steps, all the time, and they walk nowhere, not directly influenced by the primacy of the gospel. We don't walk anywhere on the planet unless Jesus and his gospel and his grace is leading us. His steps determine our steps. What he did determines what we do. And guess what? There's no exceptions to that. There is no Exception clause to that. The gospel leads us, nothing else does, and it leads us everywhere. If I, would, if I could summarize what's being said in that verse, it said, listen, may, make sure that all of your steps all the time are connected to and explicitly related to the steps of your husband's lamb salvation for you. Make sure you're always walking after him. And here's what it means, Beloved. If we're going to walk after the lamb and, and, and let his gospel story direct us, that means that we can't follow the current media trends and wherever they go. Right? We can't. We have to follow good news, not popular news. You know, sometimes uh, I, I get in these conversations with, 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 with my peers, and I hear them talk, and I hear them talk, and I hear them talk, and I'm like, you guys don't sound any different than the, than, the, than, 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 than the mainstream media. Like, you sound exactly the same. And then, and then, and then uh, six months goes later, and they're talking about something else, and now you're talking about something else. But we don't follow the media. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. We follow the Messiah, not the popular paparazzi conversation. Right? We follow the Lamb wherever He he goes. We don't follow popular Christianity. Right? We follow lamb-like, lamb-exalting Christianity, not popular Christianity. We don't follow celebrity preachers. Beloved, I don't know about you, but the last four years of my life, I've had, a, I've had an evangelical pope cited to me for why I got to do something. 
well, such and such says this, and such and such. I don't care what he says. What does a lamb say? Right? We don't follow celebrity preachers. We follow the lamb. And if you follow him, we follow you. We don't follow the state and all of their ways of seeing things. We follow the state whenever they are in line with us following the lamb. And beloved, let me say this. You got to see yourself as a kid in Publix. You know, you know I talk to my kids in Publix, and maybe you don't go to Publix, you go to Aldi's, because you know, Aldi's is like, Publix is for rich people. Publix, where shopping is ridiculously overpriced. But they, but they, got, but they got no bags in Aldi's, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't like that. All right. So I, I, I'll be one of those people that like, I, I just put everything in the car, and I just throw it in my, I throw it in my trunk, and I get home, and I'm taking it out, because I don't bring it. Anyway, all right, sorry, sidetrack. Listen, in Publix or, or Aldi's, I tell my kids, it's really simple. You grab my hand the whole time, and you grab nothing or no one else the whole time. And beloved, this is going to be very hard for us, because people are always trying to grab our hands and pull us away from Jesus. And sometimes it's in your own house, beloved. Sometimes your spouse that you love is going to be grabbing your hand and pulling you away from the lamb. And you got to say, I can't, I, can't, I can't grab your hand no more. I got this one. And you tell her, yo, come this way. Same thing with your kids. So your kids are walking away. They're dragging you away. And you have to hold on to the hand of the lamb. Because guess what? There's only one hand that was crucified for you. Only one hand that was bloody to make you right, and it's no one else's hand. So you got to let go. Leaders of the church, you will have to let go of hands over and over again because people want to drag you somewhere else, right? Church members, people want to drag you somewhere else, and we have to always grip the hand that grips us. Let me tell you something. Christianity is not the Palmetto Expressway, okay? You know what the Palmetto Expressway is? Everyone's just looking because, because everyone's looking. You know what I'm talking about? Do you do that? Let's all just look. Why? Because they're looking and they're looking. And there's like miles of traffic because everyone's looking at one car that's not even wrecked on the side of the highway. Beloved, we are not Palmetto Christianity. We're not cafeteria Christianity. We look at Jesus, not what's just popular to look at. And when people drag us in the direction, we say, I need to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Whether you're my wife, you're my friend, you're my fellow elder, I must follow the lamb wherever he goes, and you do too. That is the church. I'm like, Oh, oh, everybody, you're talking about this. You're going this way. All right, we'll, we'll follow you too. And we'll try to grab you. Let me tell you something. You cannot grab both. When you grab both, you're going to be ripped in half. It's one or the other. The gospel leads me alone. I have two more thoughts. Direct and daily dependent. But we also see ourselves as hopeful in being recreated, not improved, they were redeemed from, from the human race as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Now, that's just terminology. Let me just break it down real quick. 1 Corinthians 15 says Jesus is the first fruits. Raised from the dead. He brings a new creation, new hope because he was raised. But guess what? It says that we are in Christ and we are a part of the new creation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a part of the new creation. The same word for new creation in, the, in chapter 22 of Revelation is the word that we are, that is used in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. We are now a part of the new creation. You know how we're a part of the new creation? Through the resurrection of Jesus. We are now a part of the new creation because he redeemed us out of humanity. He didn't redeem humanity. He redeemed us out of humanity and he made us first fruits for God and the lamb. Jesus did not improve or adjust us or tweak us. He remade us in his resurrection. Now this is significant because, you know what, if, if, let, let me summarize chapter 13 of, of, of Revelation. How does man in the city of man do everything possible to remake reality and recreate things to be utopic? That's what, that's what all 13 is about. And you know what happens when chapter 13, all these humanistic ways of recreating themselves and fixing themselves, and you know what happens when we, when we embrace that? This new creation, this new utopic, heavenly hopeful situation. You know what happens? Are you guys familiar with, with I Am Legend? 
Okay, I am legend. Hey, we're going to stop cancer. What happened? Bunch of people that didn't die, but guess what? They were dead all the time. So there's this resurrection, there's this newness, but it's not good, okay? Whenever man tries to bring recreation newness apart from the resurrection first truth of Jesus, it creates an army of corpses that are not renewed, but are just dead longer. You follow me? And Babylon wants us to jump into the church chapter 13 project to be renewed. And we say, listen, Christ is the one who made us new. Christ is the one who made us a part of the new creation. I remember before I came to Christ, there was a million things that I tried to make myself news. new. Educate yourself. Guess what? You're still an educated wretch. Psychologize yourself. Guess what? You're a psychologized wretch still. Become healthy and, and you know, become a boxer. You're, you're a fit wretch. Become politicized. I went, to, I went to university. Oh, man, I became a revolutionary. All right. Hallelujah. And guess what? I was a revolutionized wretch. You can't do anything but make wretchedness just another version of wretchedness. But when I came to Jesus, when he came to me, he did not tweak and adjust me. He recreated me in the power of the resurrection. And that made me a new man. Everything else just made me another version of my depraved self with just some additions. So, beloved, let me say, that we're not, I use a lot of pictures in this sermon because I think it would be more pertinent. You know, you know what happens in Cuba? In Cuba, you have the same car that's improved for like ever. People go to Cuba like, oh, this is so cool. 50 old cars. You know why? Because they don't have any other cars. If they could buy a new car, they would. But that's not us. We are not tweaking and improving the old Jew, the old man, the old way. We have been bought and made a new car in the resurrection story of Jesus. And we live from the newness and the power of recreation gospel. Not live in this hamster wheel of Babylon, chapter 13, fixing and improving the old Jew by humanity's helps. The solution to chapter 13 and all of this fix the world projects is being redeemed as the first fruits in the resurrection of Jesus. And here's the last thing I have to say. How do we respond to all the craziness in chapter 13? We have to see ourselves as prophets, not politicians. It says in verse 5, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, again, you're not that spiritual if you think it's actually speaking about not lying, okay? All y'all lie, right? So when you read this, you can be like, oh, every Christian never tells a lie. There's no lie in their mouth. No, you just lied. What is, what, what is John, as a prophet, telling us by that sentence to speak to us about how we respond to chapter 13 craziness? Well, there's a few verses that have this same language and uses of vocab that I think is helpful. Psalms 32 through 32 two. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no defeat, deceit. Let's talk about the, the, the clarity and honesty that comes from a man who has been saved by grace. The honesty and confession of truth that comes from somebody who confesses themselves as a sinner who needs grace. That's the context of that statement. Another one, Zephaniah, again, echoing what John is saying. Zephaniah 3.13, those who are left in Israel, they do no injustice and speak no lies there shall be found in their life no, in their mouth a de- they will shall not be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now in, in Zephaniah, there's all this apostasy and lies going on. And then God says, My people tell the truth about me, the truth about salvation, the truth about sin. So going back to this, what is John trying to say by we we spell the, we, we tell the truth? about what's wrong with man and what's wrong with us and what's right with Jesus. What's the point? Well, Babylon, chapter 13, is all about lies about, right? Lies. Babylon lies about God. Babylon lies about man. Babylon lies about Christ. Babylon lies about you. Babylon lies about heaven. It just, it's, it's all lying, and it's, guess what? It's all based upon flattering you and telling you what you want to hear. 
If you want to summarize chapter 13, basically, how does the kingdom of man just tell lies about God by flattery and catering to what is natural to you in your fallen brokenness? That's what pretty much is going on in chapter 13. Babylon, Babylon chapter 13 is a seeker-friendly, please man, tell them what they want to hear and send them to hell religion. Now, what is John saying we are? We are the people that, that tell the truth. We tell the truth about God. We tell the truth about you and man. We tell the truth about creation. We tell the truth about sin. We tell the truth about hell. We tell the truth about what's wrong and what's right. And we don't add to the truth. We don't remove the truth. We don't pick and choose what truth we want to bring out. We don't, you know, play truth politics. We, listen, here's the thing. The church, this is what I notice what happens in church. We'll talk about the things that offend people over there but we'll talk about the things that offend people right here. Or we'll talk about the things that bother these people, but we won't talk about the things that bother those people. And beloved, you know who we are? We are not for sale. We tell the truth all the time, no matter what group we are in. We tell the truth. We are truth tellers. We are prophetic, prophetic truth tellers of gospel and law and God and his glory. We are not politicians who are playing into man's preferences and his feelings and his experiences we are truth tellers no lie was found in their mouths they are blameless here's a picture that may be helpful and it's a picture of a caribbean person versus a central american person you know what a, you know you know what a mexican you know what a, my, my wife is half mexican you know what but but, I, but i've converted i've converted to be cuban they don't tell you nothing bro Never. You don't know. And you know a Caribbean person, if you're Jamaican or Cuban, yo, we tell you everything. You don't got to guess. You know. Now, beloved, that's the church. That's the church. We tell you the truth. We tell the truth whether it costs us small churches, whether it costs us penalties and fines or even death we tell you the truth when no one else will and we don't play people politics god has put us here and he commends us for being those who tell the truth but as, as i say this you're like oh man the truth is scary you know you know i can't do it that's why you got to always see yourself with your name with, with your name marked by jesus you got to see yourself in chapter seven remember chapter seven we got this outfit you know what this outfit says that you have nothing to prove because you've been proven in the blood and righteousness of Christ. Your entire identity has now been proven by Jesus. So guess what? You don't have to be liked. You don't have to be popular. You don't have to be accepted because you are accepted in Jesus' robes. The freedom of the gospel is I don't have to be selfishly obsessed with my character and my reputation and my likability and my expansion and popularity. I am truly proven in Jesus, and I am free to tell the truth. Let me tell you something, beloved. I tell you in your family, be a truth teller about what's wrong with your wife, what's wrong with your husband, what's wrong with your kids, and what's right in Jesus. Don't be a politician in your home. Some of you have not told people in your house anything at all about how they're sinners who need to repent and embrace the gospel. You just always playing politics at home. Don't, don't do that, beloved. Hide in Jesus and be truthful. In this church, you members, you tell the truth about what's wrong with us and what's right in Jesus. Don't play membership politics. They're really popular. They're really like, no, no, beloved, you tell me, you tell me, you tell them, you tell the truth about what's wrong in us and what's right in Jesus, and you don't play people politics. We're installing new elders. Elders, we don't play people politics with nobody. We tell the truth about what's wrong with us, what's wrong with others, and what's right in Jesus. We don't play politics. Life is too fragile. Hell is too real. The devil is too powerful for us to not play the, for us to play the political truth game, right? We have to be truthful. We are prophets, not politicians. Now, some of you may, may say, 
you're, you're in your head right now. You're going you're gonna to tell me 60,000 verses about grace and love and kindness. Yes, but you know those verses very well. And let's be honest, the church knows this very well. We've been trying to be nice to everybody for decades and play games, and, 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 and we get that. But we have to get to that we have to be raw gospel truth tellers. And, and to be kind as we do it, and to be gracious as we do it, and to be winsome as we do it, but we still nonetheless are truth tellers. And guess what? What does 1 Corinthians 1 say? That the gospel is positively luscious and awesome to men. No, the gospel is an offense to man. You know why it offends us? Because it goes poo-poo on all of your self-righteousness parties. And it says everybody has no righteousness. The red or blue, rich or poor, born here, no one has righteousness. And only Christ is righteous. And you can only be righteous only in faith in him. That goes poo-poo on everybody's party. And that's our party that we tell the truth about. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. The solution to Babylon's lies and errors and confusion is truth-telling. Not politics with the truth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we see the busyness of Babylon, as we see the busyness of the empire that rises up from the earth, I pray, Lord God, that we would see ourselves as a ride on Mount Zion. I pray, God, that we would see ourselves defined by your grace and no need to be determined by something or someone else. Father, I pray that you would give your bride in the love of Jesus the ability to be pure and committed to him and have no side dates. I pray, God, that we would see ourselves as a part of the new creation and the resurrection and we would not buy into all the ways of improving the old that goes nowhere, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would be truth-tellers. Father, help us to respond to Satan's ways and wiles and devices with the political warfare of Mount Zion. Let us not wage war the way the world rages war. Let us wage war in light of a lamb who was slaughtered for sinners to bring us in his kingdom. Amen. That concludes our broadcast, and we hope you were inspired by it. If you'd like to know more about Reformation Miami Ministries, be sure to look us up on the web, reformationmiami.org.